What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. We started off the week with a new trade deal with a new name and one less trade front for the White House to worry about. Just don't call it NAFTA. The trilateral North American trade deal got a Trumpian rebrand as the USMCA, an acronym that caused more than one White House official to stumble in interviews. We discussed the new deal with Stefan Selig, former U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce and International Trade under President Obama. We started off by asking what improvements President Trump got, and Stefan gave credit where credit's due. Definitely a win for the president, and it's a win for U.S. businesses and workers. Um, uh, and we've also uh, avoided uh, what would have been a big misstep if we would have exited NAFTA. Um, so the fact is NAFTA is 25 years old and, and going, and it needed to be updated. And many of the provisions, frankly, we were hoping to update in NAFTA were included in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. Um, but uh, this, is, this is a good step. Uh, I think the president is quite right um, that it is good for the country. And so I think we should all uh, uh, give him uh, uh, our congratulations. What specifically is the win for U.S. workers? Well, it's, it's a few things. One is we're not exiting um, uh, NAFTA and, as a result, putting in jeopardy global supply chains. Right. Um, so that's, I think... Uh, uh, so we avoided a loss. We, we, we avoided a loss, but the fact is we do now have better access to the Canadian mm. dairy market. They're keeping their quite complex dairy system in place, but market access uh, will be improved. And um, hopefully these new auto rules, which are going to increase the amount of North American content to go to 75%, uh, up to 75% uh, to get uh, tax-free treatment under NAFTA, will ultimately be good for uh, U.S. workers and U.S. businesses. You know, it'll, it'll be complicated, so we'll see how um, uh, that plays out. When you look at the way that they negotiated this particular agreement, can this sort of be used as a playbook for some of the other outstanding trade issues that we have, particularly with China? Um, I'm not quite so sure, and I guess I'm not so sure um, because fundamentally we were still and are much closer to Canada uh, than we are with China, which is going to be far more complex. I mean, don't forget Canada is a market economy mm -hmm. and an ally. Uh, China is operating in a wildly different uh, commercial and economic sphere. So I don't think that this uh, should be considered a harbinger to a near-term success that the administration is likely to have with China. The asks are much broader, uh, and the systems are much more complicated. And so that, I think, is going to take uh, a fair amount of work to have um, some success with. Is this new deal actually even more of a hit to China and the relationship with China? Because when you see that effectively the, it bars the three members from striking any new deal with China because they can't negotiate with a non-market economy, so it says NAFTA 2.0. 
Well, I don't know, Carolyn. I guess I would say if we can get this behind us and work with our allies to deal with these issues that we have with China, we're going to be in a much, much better position. Um, so the fact is the, the issues that we have with China are not really specific to the United States. They also affect Canada. They also affect Mexico. And they also affect the EU, for example. Mm. And so to the extent that we're not fighting all of these battles at the same time, I think we're going to be in a better position to at least um, hopefully make progress on what is the big fight. So the knock from Trump critics, and you kind of hinted at this yourself, is that this isn't a revolution. It's kind of a refurbishment of NAFTA. Nonetheless, it has a new name. It's been rebranded. Is it a new deal or is it NAFTA 1.1 or 2.0? It, it, it's an update. It's a, it's a redo, not a yeah. do-over. Okay. Um, uh, the fact is, is that a lot of the things that were in TPP are in, about labor rights, environmental standards, protections of intellectual property, the digital economy are in this new deal. And so that is all, that is all good. And, you know, look, if we can um, do TPP again and call it uh, the Trump-Pacific Partnership, I'd be all for it. So um, renaming it uh, is great uh, as long as um, we don't uh, do any damage. Well, but when we talk about the potential benefits, particularly for the U.S., uh, where exactly are we going to see those benefits? Well, um, as I said, the auto thing, um, we'll see how that plays right. out in terms of increased uh, employment. Uh, you know, specifically, there are going to be benefits um, to our dairy farmers mm-hmm. uh, because of um, more market access. And there'll be specifically, there are going to be um, higher standards in this new agreement. Uh, they're going to force Canada and Mexico, many respects, more Mexico than Canada, mm-hmm. to have to adopt some of the rules and regulations that we have, and as a result, not put our companies at a disadvantage because we have a cost structure uh, that is fundamentally different than companies operating in those jurisdictions. And so um, uh, that's all good. We did see nice rallies today for the loonie and the peso in the wake of this announcement. When you talk about North American uh, components and more done in North America, you expect that'll be good news for Mexico? It will, because, you know, frankly, one of the things we have created in the last 25 years is an unbelievably strong manufacturing block in North America. And so when we make cars, those cars go back and forth between Canada and Mexico and the United States and allows our companies to produce world-class cars that can effectively compete with Japan and South Korea uh, and Germany. And so allowing that to continue will be good for this country, uh, will be good for exporters, and most importantly, Um, eliminating the uncertainty of not having a NAFTA going forward is going to be really good for the economy and growth. Because what I've been hearing from clients uh, and business leaders around the world are people have been sitting on their hands, not making investments, not knowing ultimately how this is going to play out. I hope the president is right that this sails through um, uh, all three legislative bodies because it does need to be approved in all three countries. Uh, My guess is that still may be a little bit challenging here in the United States. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, It's going to happen in early 2019, so we're going to have to see what happens with the midterms. Uh, But I think we should all be hopeful that it gets uh, done. Then we went through this week's budget battle in Italy with Adriano Bassani, senior Europe analyst at Stratfor, and discussed whether Italy is the new Greece. I would say it's a partial concession in the sense that they are sticking to their original pledge of having a deficit of 2.4% next year. And they are saying that their budget and their economic plan is so good that Italy will grow so much and the economy will perform so well 
that the deficit by itself will decrease as a percentage of the Italian economy in 2020 and 2021. The thing is, they are making a promise now of something that will happen a year and a half or two years from now. So to me, this is mostly a signal that they want to send to financial markets. And I would not say that this is written in stone and that they will not change their mind somewhere down the line. Adriano, I think you hit the nail on the head when they're talking about deficit promises two years out. There's only so much that they can really reassure. But to the degree that they want to play ball, degree that they're not being antagonistic with Europe, is that the type of thing that will reassure investors that ultimately the government is not looking to start trouble here? It's interesting because it seems to me that investors are trying to cling to whatever piece of good news they can get. And today, the, even the reaction to a rumor, because before the government made a formal announcement, there were rumors in Italian media, and those rumors were enough for Italian bond yields to go down, to the euro to, to go up. So investors are trying to look for any good news they can get. Having said that, I would say that uh, the fundamental problems connected to the Italian economy are still there. This is still an economy with a massive level of public debt. This is still an economy that is not growing enough. And this is still an anti-establishment government that is challenging EU rules. So I would say that uh, the, the, the reasons to be afraid or to be concerned, at least, about the future of Italy are still there. Now, Adriana, I'm glad you brought that up because most of the market, at least here uh, on this side of the world, isn't really trading on the deficit or on the fiscal issues per se. They're trading more on the political issues. And I wonder how soon Italy is going to be able to resolve some of those political issues, uh, not only within their own borders, but, of course, the issues they have with the EU more broadly. The thing is that Italy has a coalition government with two very different political parties, with two very different agendas. There's one party, the League, which responds to uh, Italy's wealthy north, where all the industries are, where most of the, of, the, of the economic activity takes place. And this is a party that wants to cut taxes, because that's what business in the north wants. Whereas the other member of the coalition, the Five Star Movement, is particularly popular in the south, where the economy does not do as well as in the north, and where there are lots of people with, without jobs. And this party is promising to increase welfare spending, to increase... Uh, unemployment benefits. And, and, and you can see that there's a problem there because there's a party that wants to cut taxes and there's a party that wants to increase welfare and the result is this kind of compromise that they reached. But that compromise involves a change of direction in the, in the Italian fiscal policies. And that's why the European Commission is so concerned. Adriano, you mentioned the economic troubles and the high level of public debt still. But is it possible that there could be upside surprises in Italy? I'm thinking about earlier this week, we got that Italian unemployment rate coming in much better than economists had expected at 9.7 percent. Economists were looking for something over 10 percent. It's still elevated versus pre-crisis levels, even as in 2011, it was at 8 percent. But could there still be a lot of Italians who may, in the next year or two, uh, re-enter the workforce and uh, stimulate the economy? So that question has different answers. On the one hand, I would say that uh, a significant part of Italy's uh, economic uh, growth in the past few years is the result of policies like the European Central Bank's QE program or because of a better business environment and economic environment in the eurozone and not necessarily because of structural reforms that Italian governments have introduced in their economy to make it more competitive. 
So there were, over the past few years, several external factors that have helped somewhat the Italian economy. Of course, if the government starts pumping money like crazy into the economy, there is room for some growth, that's, that's for sure. But the big question is, if your deficit is too high, what do you do when the next economic downturn happens, when the next slowdown in the Eurozone economy happens, and you find yourself with a very high deficit and very little room for maneuver, and then you may have to go back to the austerity policies that created uh, that anger and that uh, disenchantment in the electorate and brought the, the populist parties in power in the first place. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Then a guest from the West Coast came on, Bo Whitney, senior economist at New Frontier Data, which bills itself as, quote, the global authority in data analytics and business intelligence on the cannabis industry, unquote, to talk about the economics of the legal marijuana industry, particularly in Oregon, where he is based, and why the state could be a model for the rest of the country as legalization expands. Well, the potential of the Oregon market is tremendous. Um, currently, the data shows that this is a market of 1.0 to $1.1 dollars. About 725 million of that is supported either through the adult use or medical markets. And so the opportunity is ripe for the picking. But Bo, what you've also noted is there's plenty of competition applications flooding the market to such an extent that the regulators aren't accepting any new ones. When it's so competitive, how are certain companies standing out? Are they not? Is it just you buy it from anyone? Well, no, um, that's the key. So the key is differentiation at this point. Um, it's hyper-competitive in the Oregon market due to saturation of both um, retailers and cultivators. And so the ones that really have the best operations and the best results are the ones that are being looked at from an investment perspective. Who? Oh, who? Well, actually, um, there are some investors from the Canadian market that are already investing in this space. Um, you know, C21 is, is one that's making some headways into the Oregon market. Golden Leaf Holdings is another. But right now, it's been difficult for those folks to identify the key players and Bo, the ones that are standing out. But when you're looking at some of the uh, businesses that are uh, applying uh, to expand out in, in your state specifically, are, you, are these mostly smaller players? Are you starting to see uh, larger companies uh, trying to take a stake in this market? Well, what's occurring right now is that given the fact that prices are declining due to saturation of supply, there's uh, stress in the market. So people are looking to consolidate. A lot of them are getting out of the market, and then others are teaming up with other businesses to form coalitions, and then those are being invested in by, by outside investors. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the margin situation. When it's fully legalized everywhere, and we don't, I say when, but it may never happen in the U.S., but supposing it were to, would we be looking at margins for equivalent to tobacco, alcohol? Like, where are they going to settle? Well, right now it depends upon the amount of supply that's in the market. 
because it'll drive down prices and drive down margins. As such, it's really tough to say, looking at the data, where the margins will settle, but we know that they'll be lower than they are today. But what has been the biggest surprise for you monitoring the Oregon market as it's developed? Well, there's been a couple of surprises. One is how rapidly the market's consolidated. Hmm. I don't think um, a year ago that there would be this level of consolidation going on. Steep drops in prices as well, 50% reduction in the uh, retail for indoor cultivated supply as well as uh, outdoor cultivated supply. So the the commoditization of prices has also been very, uh, very, very um, striking and, and surprising. So, what, Bo, uh, what are you seeing in terms of tax revenue for the state so far? Yeah, that's actually a highlight for the state. There's been over $199 million in state tax revenue, either at the retail level that's taxed by the state or local retail taxes. But um, $199 million over the course of the last two, two and a half years. Then we wrapped things up with Shira Ovide, Bloomberg opinion columnist, to talk about Jeff Bezos raising the minimum wage for all U.S. and U.K. employees, which even won praise from Amazon critic Bernie Sanders. Shira told us why it's a small price to pay for its reputation. There's two aspects of this. There's a business imperative, and then there's a political and corporate imperative that Amazon has. But as you pointed out, right, Dave Clark, a month ago, was the Amazon executive out front responding rather angrily to Senator Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator uh, in the U.S., basically, who was accusing Amazon of having poor working conditions and pay for its warehouse workers. And today we have the same guy basically, um, you know, agreeing to raise the minimum wage at Amazon warehouse workers. And you saw Jeff Bezos and Senator Sanders kind of patting each other on the back, at least uh, on Twitter, metaphorically patting each other on the back for their good works. <laughs> Do you have a feel for what the starting wage was previously or roughly what the average wage was of the people who weren't yet making $15 an hour? Yeah, it's a good question. And and it's hard to know for sure because Amazon didn't have kind of a flat floor uh, price wage for its warehouse workers. But what you've seen in reports is that depending a lot by market, it might have been $11 or $12 an hour or higher in other places. So it does seem like some people are going to get a significant wage increase who work in Amazon's warehouses, and that also applies to the 100,000 or so seasonal workers that Amazon hires ahead of the holiday season. So that's a big deal for those folks, too. Do you think this wage hike was because of the political pressure, or was it more because of the economic pressure? I, I think that that's yeah. the unknown. That's a great question, and the un, an unknown for me is how much is Amazon doing this, because the labor market is tight, and to attract the best workers it needed to raise those wages, and how much of it is because it wants to avoid this reputation of Amazon, this big, rich kind of bad boy of retailing who underpays workers. Well, I did see some numbers in a Bloomberg story from one of our Bloomberg reporters that showed that that $15 an hour is still just barely at sort of the median industry-wide for what, you know, warehouse workers and forklift operators would get. That's right. If you look at at kind of median wages right. for uh, big box stores, kind of mm-hmm. Target, Walmart, right. they're still in the kind of $11, $12, maybe going up to 15% if you look at tar- $15 if you look at Target. Mm-hmm. But yes, warehouse workers, uh, particularly the specialized warehouse workers gotcha. that have certifications, mm-hmm. do tend to get paid more. Yeah. Sure, we're talking a lot about warehouse workers, but one interesting note in the press release is that they would apply this standard 
to the employees of subcontractors of the company. And there's been a lot of reporting, a lot of good Bloomberg reporting specifically about Silicon Valley's use of subcontractors and these invisible employees within larger companies. Do you expect this is going to be a growing area of tension and more big tech companies will be forced to address the working conditions and pay of their subcontracted labor? It's a great point that it is, and it's not just in Silicon Valley, right. all over corporate America, right? There is, There are these shadow workers, these huge shadow workforce of contractors that are not on the payroll and that may get much lower wages and poorer benefits than people who are full-time workers. And you see those, um, it is endemic in Silicon Valley. You see people with, you know, sort of different badges and things like that. Um, I'm surprised it hasn't been more of an issue in, in technology, particularly as you have these uh, workers getting paid huge salaries and then this contract workforce maybe yeah. not getting paid huge salaries. So, yes, you're right that Amazon, you know, rightfully so, applied that $15 minimum wage to um, people hired by temp agencies. And, you know, that puts pressure on maybe other companies to do the same. Talking of putting pressure, where does Amazon pass us on to, if at all? Does it swallow what could be a billion-dollar increase in cost if Bloomberg Intelligence numbers are right? Yeah, it's a fair question. I mean, look, if we're talking about a billion dollars or a couple billion dollars a year in additional costs, Amazon's annual operating costs, excluding what it pays for products you know, uh, that it sells, is $60 billion plus. Drop in the ocean. So it's really not that big of a deal. And it just goes to show you how little it costs Amazon to deliver you know, pretty significant benefit for a lot of people people who work there. And that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.